0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com give. You're listening to episode 216 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the psychic medium, Robert Riggi. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In the last few years, a psychic medium known as Robert Riggi has been giving interviews on many, many podcasts. It's understandable why so many podcasts would be interested in him. He has a very dramatic life story. After experiencing an apparition at age four, he went on to display psychic powers. He gained two master's degrees and became licensed as a forensic psychologist and clinical social worker in multiple states. When he was still in college, he interviewed the serial killer, Ted Bundy. He participated in two exorcisms authorized by the Archdiocese of Chicago and today he works with psychic children and children who are in the process of dying. But it's important to check out the claims of people with dramatic life stories. And Jimmy recently played a role in an investigation of Riggy. So, what did the investigation reveal? What investigative techniques were used? And did Riggy's claims check out? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, how did you first become aware of today's mystery, and why did you want to cover the topic on Mysterious World? A few months ago, I got a message from Kenny Biddle.
1: Uh, Kenny is an open-minded skeptic who writes for the Skeptical Inquirer, and he's also been one of my instructors at the Ryan Education Center, where he co-taught a course I took on skepticism and parapsychology. When I took the course, I was impressed with him and the investigative techniques he uses, so I was happy to play a small role in his investigation when he contacted me about a psychic medium named Robert Rigge. As you said, Riggy has been appearing on a lot of podcasts over the last four years, beginning in late 2018. When I dug into it, I was really surprised to see just how many appearances he'd made. It's a lot more than you might think. So he's been an extremely popular guest on Paranormal-themed podcasts, and that's understandable since he has a dramatic story to tell. But it's always important to test the claims that people are making, as we point out here on Mysterious World, and Kenny Biddle did exactly that. Eventually, Kenny published an article on his findings, and I wanted to talk about this case today uh, because it's an excellent illustration of what you can find out using modern investigative techniques.
0: Are there any things we should be aware of before we start looking at the investigation? As always, we'll be
1: keeping things clinical and won't be dwelling on sensationalistic details, but some things could be a bit disturbing, especially for sensitive listeners, so parents may wish to listen first and make
0: decisions for their families. And how will we be proceeding with today's mystery?
1: Well, as we usually do, we'll first give the background on the mystery before we analyze it. Uh, In this case, that means we'll start by telling Robert Riggie's story as he's told it on a variety of podcasts. And then afterwards, in the segment on the reason perspective, we'll be bringing on Kenny Biddle to tell us about his investigation and what he found. The key thing to note for you know, going forward purposes, is what techniques can he used, and how they can and should be applied when someone is making dramatic claims about their life story.
0: Then let's look at Robert Riggi. Who is he?
1: Uh, Robert Riggi is a psychic medium. That means he claims to be both a psychic and a medium. Uh, There's there's two different things, although they're related. Some people only claim to be a psychic, others claim only to be a medium, but Riggy claims to be both. He's 67 years old, and he lives in Peoria, Illinois. In 2021, he wrote a biography that was posted to the Paranormal 101 education page on Facebook, and it says,
0: My name is Robert Riggy." I have a master's degree in forensics, psychology, and clinical social work from the University of Florida. I am licensed to practice within the realm and criteria set by each particular state in the realm of forensic psychology and clinical social work. I am also a psychic medium. My first experience is when I was four, and I will be 67 in November. That was in 2021, so he is 67 now. I do many, many things within the field. I combine my psychic abilities and my mediumship along with the vast experience and education within the realm of forensic psychology and clinical social work. I combine those disciplines together and they work beautifully. I also mentor children, which I will call children of the paranormal. I assist the children as well as their families, understanding their abilities and gifts. I also volunteered at a hospice that ministers to children in their homes, and I am called in within hours before these beautiful, beautiful children that leave this earth of three dimensions for the heavenly dimension, and I assist the children in crossing over along with their guardian angels. I have been involved in two exorcisms that have been sanctioned by the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Chicago. Also, I am a practitioner of past life regression. I have used that in my private practice as well as within the realm of my mediumship and psychic abilities. Also, I assist those in the grieving process. So, Riggy says he has two master's degrees,
1: one in forensic psychology and one in clinical social work. Both are from the University of Florida, and he's also licensed to practice in those two fields in various states. And he's a psychic medium, having had his first paranormal experience at the age of four. Today, he works with psychic children to help them come to grips with their abilities, and he also helps children in hospice care who are in the process of dying. He also practices the technique of past life regression, and that's a subject we discussed back in episodes 93 and 94 on the Bridie Murphy reincarnation case, and he's been involved in two exorcisms authorized by the Archdiocese of Chicago.
0: Riggy says that his first paranormal experience occurred when he was four years old. What does he say about that? On the podcast Bigfoot and the Bunny,
2: he says, Going back to my first experiences when I was four years old, I had gotten up about three o'clock in the morning. And back then, in 1958, I was four, right? I had no idea what three o'clock meant. When I was four, like I said, I woke up, had to go to the bathroom, and I saw. Abraham Lincoln, I, you know, I am born, I was born and raised in Illinois. Anyway. and Abraham Lincoln came to me in a full apparition and I remember him smiling and nodding at me. I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared. But later on I realized that by seeing Abraham Lincoln nod at me, that was validation for what I would be doing later in life. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so after using the bathroom, I knocked on my parents' door. They thought that I was ill. And so they said, what are you doing up? And I said, I had to go pee, being four years old, right? Mm-hmm. And I, th- I saw Abraham Lincoln. And my father started to laugh, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so... My father said, what did he want? I said, I don't know. I said, he was just nodding his head and smiling at me. That's all. I wasn't scared. So my mom said, crawl into bed with us, you know. And so hours later, about nine o'clock in the morning, my Spanish mother took me to my Italian grandmother, Nona. And we went to this white wolf that I would call her, right? A witch. A wife witch. Yeah. Okay. A brute in Italian and Spanish. She, and this looked like she was 10,000 years old. Oh my gosh, she looked like a hag. God forgive me. But anyhow, she was not kind of scary to me, you know. But she put her hand on top of my head. I could feel her energy go down and enter my little body. I began to quiver, began to shake. She could also feel my energy leave my body and go into her. okay? She smiled. She said in Italian to my grandmother that I was quite gifted. I was special.
1: Before he was president, Abraham Lincoln had been a congressman from Illinois, and Lincoln was certainly a famous man whose image might even be known to a four-year-old, especially a resident of Illinois like Riggy. So Riggy says that he saw him when he was four years old in 1958 while he was on his way to the bathroom. Lincoln appeared to him as an apparition, and he was a comforting presence who supportively nodded at Riggy but did not say anything. Riggy later interpreted this as indicating support for the paranormal things he would do later in life. Further, his Italian grandmother took him to a white witch or a bruja in Spanish, and the white witch confirmed that Riggi was gifted and special.
0: What happened to Robert Riggi after he had this initial paranormal experience at age four? He grew
1: up and went to college at the University of Florida. There, he earned two master's degrees, one in forensic psychology and one in clinical social work. Based on the date that he entered, you might have expected him to graduate in 1978. However, he took two extra years of courses on anatomy and neurology. As he explains on the Paranormal Brew
2: podcast. So I went to University of Florida, and but I took two extra years. Um, of um a physiology and anatomy. I wanted more I wanted to know more about the body, how it acts, everything about that. I took extra cur- courses in neurology and such like that.
1: While he was still in school in 1980, he had the opportunity to interview the serial killer Ted Bundy, who we will be discussing in a future episode. But here's how Reggie describes his meeting with the imprisoned serial killer
2: In 1980, I was at the University of Florida. I was working on my master's degrees. I have two of them, one in forensic psychology and the other one in clinical social work. I had taken two years of of more education there. I wanted to take pre-med courses. I wanted to learn more about physiology. But um, anyhow, I had written to, I had gone to my supervisor and said, um, or my advisor, and I said, I would. I want to write Ted Bundy because he's only fifty miles from us, and I want to. I want to write him to see if we can come and see him. And uh, so I wrote to him. Wrote to his lawyer. Wrote to uh, his superintendent. Or wrote to the superintendent of the prison, the warden. And several weeks later, I received a letter from all three of them stating, yes, we were able to come there. And uh, so on a Saturday, it was myself. Uh, three female psychologists, and so was myself and another male psychologist. And so the day arrived, and uh, so we got there, and we sat in a room. And uh, twenty minutes later, he comes into the room, and and so we welcome each other, and he looks at me, and all I see is dark behind those eyes. There is no redeeming factor in that in that in that person in um, in Ted's eyes. He said, Robert, I know who you are. And I know what you do.
1: So Riggy wrote to Ted Bundy, his lawyer and the warden of the prison, and got permission to interview Bundy. He went with three female psychologists and one male psychologist. And when Ted showed up, he told Riggy, I know who you are and I know what you do. He'd, of course, know who Riggy was because he'd written to him. And I know what you do could be a reference to the fact that Riggy was doing psychology. You know, like, I know who you are, you head shrinker. You manipulate people. Or it could be a reference to Riggy's claimed paranormal abilities.
0: Ted Bundy was executed in 1989. Meeting him while still in grad school would be rather dramatic. What did Riggy go on to do professionally after school? He went on to get
1: certifications in various states. And I'm also licensed in nine states
2: as a forensic psychologist and clinical social worker.
1: This interview was given in October or November of 2021. So he indicates he was certified at that time in nine states as a forensic psychologist and clinical social worker. He also worked for many years as a criminal profiler in Florida.
2: And so I was a criminal profiler and. As I look back after all these 30-plus years, I really don't know how I did it. You know, seeing the best of humanity and the worst of humanity, it, it does take its toll. It does greatly.
1: Elsewhere, he indicates that he worked as a profiler in Florida for 35 years. If he started uh, doing that right out of grad school in 1980, that would represent the period between 1980 and 2015.
0: Riggi says that he's been involved with two exorcisms that were authorized by the Archdiocese of Chicago. Tell us about those. We won't go into a lot of detail, as our goal isn't to
1: scare people, but in his interviews, he discusses the two exorcisms, which he says were performed on a man named Kevin and a woman named Vivian. Uh, we'll discuss the Kevin exorcism since he says more about it. But basically, a few years ago, he says he got a phone call in the middle of the night from a man he didn't know. This man's name was Kevin, and he'd gotten Riggy's phone number because someone had heard Riggy on a radio show, and that's one of the things Riggy does. He comments. Commonly gives out his phone number on shows and invites people to call him if they want to talk. As they spoke on the phone, Kevin's voice changed, indicating it was a demon speaking through Kevin. At first, Riggy didn't conclude that it was a demon, as opposed to just Kevin pretending or Kevin being mentally ill. Uh, but Riggy then called the Diocese of Peoria, and he and a priest went out to interview Kevin and determine if he was actually possessed. During the interview, the demon began to display preternatural knowledge. This was what initially convinced him that Kevin was genuinely possessed.
2: And what really then I understood that he was possessed is when the demon came through him again and said, Robert, I'm going to tell you things that only you know. And then he begins to tell me of me being adopted. Now, how would Kevin know that it's not? It's not on yeah, my Facebook. Yeah. yeah, well, they know
1: everything. Okay. I mean, they know. Yeah, they right. know. Oh, they do. Yeah, they know. So the demon knew that Riggy had been adopted, which is not something Kevin could have naturally known or easily known, since this information wasn't on Riggy's Facebook page.
0: Now, displays of preternatural knowledge are one indication of possession, as we discussed in episode one eighty-eight on whether demons are involved in a situation or not. But preternatural knowledge alone isn't enough because people can have preternatural knowledge without demons being involved. Did they eventually conclude that Kevin showed enough signs that he could be diagnosed as genuinely possessed? They did, and so they brought him to an exorcist. Do you know who Father
2: Michael is from Chicago, the Archdiocese of Chicago? If anyone would watch, uh, like, Ghost Adventures and the, the Demon House and all that, Father Michael was um, on with Zach uh, regarding that. Father Michael is a very good friend of
1: mine. Here, Riggy refers to Zach Baggins, who is the host of Ghost Adventures on the Travel Channel. In 2018, he also produced a documentary called Demon House about a house in Gary, Indiana. And the documentary featured a priest named Father Michael Magino, who Riggie says is a good friend of his. In addition to being the exorcist for Kevin, Father Michael was also the exorcist for Vivian.
0: After establishing that Kevin was possessed, they then got permission from the Archdiocese of Chicago to perform the exorcism. Where did that take place?
1: At a Jesuit monastery attached to Loyola University Medical Center in Maywood, Illinois. And Riggy describes how they prepared for the exorcism.
2: We all meet in the chapel at Loyola Medical Center at the chapel. And so we and being Catholic, we go to confession, we go to communion, we get ready, the rosary and stuff like that. Okay, this exorcism lasts several days. It's not constant. It's not a constant exorcism. There are breaks in it. The priest needs to take break. Kevin needs physically needs to take a break. Now, I must also tell you that Kevin signed a form giving permission to the Catholic Church, and all of us were named, to perform this exorcism on him. He had to give permission. He had to want to get this done. First of all, legally, it protects himself and us. Secondly, he is ready to have this done. He is willing to help get rid of this demon. He also signs a form giving us the permission, Father Michael, um, to tape, to tape everything that goes on from the time he gets there and time he is released to go home. And um, and now that tape, like I said, is used in instructing um, other priests, other people becoming exorcists. Okay. And so, uh, so was myself, Father Michael. Father Michael was the head exorcist. There was a psychiatrist there, a priest. Uh, There was also a behavioral psychologist who was a priest. I was there, and then two seminarians were there. Now, Kevin also signed a form stating. That if we had to um, restrain him, that he gives permission to be restrained, because if he did not give that permission and if we would have restrained him, we could have been arrested for, for unlawful kidnapping and restraint.
1: So they went to confession and communion. They got appropriate paperwork filled out and signed, and then they did the exorcism. Here, Riggy notes that it took several days and that it wasn't continuous, meaning they took breaks. Elsewhere, he indicates that it took 74 hours from beginning to end, meaning that it took almost four days.
0: But it was successful, and Kevin was eventually freed from his demon. Having participated in these two exorcisms, what has Riggy been doing in recent years? As he mentioned in his bio, Riggy works with children who he refers to as
1: children of the paranormal. He says he helps them and their families understand their paranormal gifts and abilities. He's also volunteered at a hospice that serves children who are dying at home. And as they're passing, he goes to their homes to help them cross over, which can involve communicating with the spirits who come to welcome them into the next life. He helps uh, people with the grieving process, including the parents of the children, and he does past life regressions, by which I assume he means that he uses hypnosis to regress people into past lives. And as we said, that was a subject we discussed in episodes 93 and 94, as that was a technique used in the Bridie Murphy reincarnation case.
0: Apart from the hospice, how does he get the clients he works with?
1: As we noted, he often gives out his phone number on radio shows and podcasts that he appears on, and he invites people to call or text him if they want to talk. So those are the basic things to know about Robert Riggie, and now we'll bring on Kenny Biddle, who investigated Riggy and see what he found
0: out. And just before we do that, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Father Leo H., Derek B., John N., Jennifer P., and Justin R. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Kenny Biddle is a science enthusiast who investigates claims of paranormal
1: experiences, equipment, photos, and video. He promotes science, critical thinking, and skepticism through his Facebook blog, I am Kenny Biddle, and through his YouTube channel. He frequently hosts workshops on how to deconstruct and explain paranormal photography. He writes articles for the Skeptical Inquirer, and he's co-taught the course Parapsychology and Skepticism at the Ryan Education Center, which is where I first met him. Kenny Biddle, welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Thank you, Jimmy. It's good to see you again, buddy. Yeah. Uh, Before we get into your investigation of Robert Riggi, I have a couple of questions. Uh, First, I've mentioned that you're a skeptic, but that can mean various things from a person who tests unusual claims to a person who is totally closed to them. What does uh, skepticism mean in your case and what kind of uh, religious philosophical worldview are you coming from? Just so the listeners are aware.
3: Oh, That's a good question. Uh, So skepticism to me just means you have doubt about something. And I mean, we're all a little bit skeptical about something. And for me, I deal with a lot of paranormal claims, whether it's ghosts or hauntings or possession, um, all the way to Bigfoot, Loch Ness, and alien visitations and and abductions. So I'm skeptical of the stories. I don't think the people are lying necessarily, but I have doubt that what they experienced is uh, perceived in the way that they're relating to us. Um, so. I try to look into it. I try to look at, as deep as I can. I get all the information and, you know, try to come to a logical conclusion based on the information, the data that we can uncover. So s- skepticism to me is not just dismissing things. I don't like doing that. I really have a hard time with people that do that kind of uh, skepticism. Uh, I, I see it more as cynicism uh, because I like to get my hands dirty. I like boots on ground. Let's investigate. Let's figure it out. and. I think that's the best way to go
1: in terms of worldview. So are you open to the idea that paranormal or supernatural experiences could be real? Or are you like a convinced materialist that, no, there is no paranormal, there is no supernatural?
3: I'm open to it. I'm definitely open to it. And I think that's what really drives me. Uh, besides the whole Scooby-Doo effect, which is me just loving to solve mysteries, I love to unmask the the the. the Old Man Withers at the end yeah. of the episode. I love that. But deep down inside, I mean, I I grew up with In Search of um, with Unsolved Mysteries. I grew up with those shows and they inspired me. I love the mystery. I love, I couldn't believe that, yeah, these things actually happen in our world. And when I got to to be an adult, a grown-up, I was able to go out and and explore this for myself. So there's always that thrill of the the mystery and the adventure. So I'm always open to it and I will I volunteer to go on ghost hunts and Bigfoot hunts and uh even with the Mufon. I I've tagged along with Mufon on their investigations to investigate claims where people say alien craft have landed and aliens came out. I love it. So yes, I am open to it. Unfortunately, all the cases that I have investigated usually turn out to be either completely solved or enough data shows that it's most likely a natural explanation for it rather than a supernatural explanation.
1: Okay. Now, um, I really enjoyed you as an instructor in the Parapsychology and Skepticism course. Um, Out of curiosity, many of our listeners, you know, kind of think of me in a teaching role because of Mysterious Worlds, essentially a documentary and and I function as a teacher in a bunch of little capacities.
3: And it's great, by the way. I love your show. I'm just breaking oh. in here to say I love it. I listen to it at work. I love it. I love your approach. I love your angle. I love your very calm um, um, way of speaking. And it 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 makes me happy throughout the day. So I love listening oh. to your show.
1: Oh, well, thank you. That's so kind. Um, so I have this kind of a teacher-like role for a lot of the audience. But how did you find me as a student?
3: I like... A student that challenges me, and that's what you are. <laughs> you you don't you're not confrontational. You are not uh, the the mean or, or or quote unquote that student that always has to make a remark or always has to make a comment, and sometimes it's sarcastic. You asked really thought out questions and made me think, and I love that. I love that because I don't want to stereotype, but a lot of my audience when I do lectures public lectures uh to whether it's thirty people or three thousand people, many of them have a, a pretty hardcore belief in the paranormal. So the questions are the same over and over again. And they deal with do you believe, do you this, do you do you know, do you think the the EMF meter is a great ghost hunting tool or something like that? But your questions were really thought out and and You articulate things really well. I wish I could articulate questions the way you do. Uh, But unfortunately, I grew up in Philly. So you got my Philly accent, you got my attitude sometimes. It comes out. But uh, no, I I enjoyed it. I really looked forward. When I saw your hand go up or when you start to talk, I was like, oh, this is going to be good. All right, cool. (laughs) Here we go. We're getting into it.
1: OK, well, thank you. I was I was going to I was braced if you were going to say, oh, you were a terrible student and you were dipping little girls pigtails and in inkwells. And <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, you were you were great. OK,
1: so uh, tell us, how did you first become involved in the Robert Rigby case? What what led you to investigate his claims and how did you proceed in doing that?
3: So a friend of mine, Taryn Kerper, she does a podcast. It's a, a paranormal podcast called the Paranormal Brew. And she called me one night after her show, she had just interviewed the guy and she called me up and said, Hey, I, how do you investigate people? And that was was literally the question she asked. How do you investigate people? And I was like, well, it's a little bit more involved than just a five minute conversation, but I I'm happy to go through some steps with you. And we started building uh, back and forth and, She made a comment, a nice comment. It was like a a Jedi training a Padawan. And I was very excited because I, you know, I'm a big Star Wars fan. Uh I was like, all right, you you got it. We're in this, you know, for the long haul now. But she started describing her interview. And with Robert Riege. With Robert Riege, yeah. And talking about some of the things that he said, the claims that he made. And she was wondering how to verify whether they were true or not. And I said, well, I, I can help you with that. I can go through and look at this and look at that. I can look at documents and talking about calling uh, University of Florida to to talk to the registrar down there to see, you know, it confirming uh his graduation, his his uh degrees and it just spiraled out out from there. Uh she would do a great job at going out and finding other interviews that he was a part of and then sending me links so that I could review them which That's that's probably the most difficult part of the job is listening to hours and hours and hours.
1: The the primary research (laughs) of getting familiar with the data is always the hardest part before you dissect it. And you listen to like more than two dozen podcasts that this guy was on, which is a phenomenal number. I mean, he's really been all over the place. And each one of these was like an hour to two or two and a half hours long. That was a lot of
3: work. Yeah. Luckily, I, you can have the option of listening at like 1.5 or two, two speed, double the speed. So that's mm-hmm. what I was doing, listening to the, but it still took a lot of time. And I also had the luxury at my job where I can listen to podcasts during the day as I work. So that's what I was doing for like two weeks straight. I listened to Robert was in my head, <laughs> literally listening to him uh, do interviews over and over and over again.
1: And you then like built up a timeline of uh, the podcasts that he was on and the claims that he made and so forth. And eventually you wrote an article for the Skeptical Inquirer, which we'll have a link to so people can read it.
3: Awesome. But yeah, that that's that came a little bit later. I usually write down notes. I have I have notebooks everywhere. Totally old school. I will write down everything from I have a pocket (laughs) notebook that goes in my back pocket to the smaller notebooks like this to the bigger college ruled uh notebooks but uh I started writing down quotes and as I listened to more and more podcasts I was realizing like oh he changed his story there or he he said something different and then I would have to go back and I'm like oh what was what was the podcast so I did start writing everything down and I have timestamps uh in the out in the uh, outline the the date the podcast was aired the name of the podcast, the t- timestamps where he made quotes, um, certain uh, claims, and just went back and forth and started comparing and saying, "Oh wow, there's a lot of contradictions here." Mm-hmm. So now we can dig into this really well. Now I can, once I had that timeline and a list of contradictions, now I started going through piece by piece. Let's let's call the college. Let's call the uh, a priest that was involved. Let's call this person and just went down the line.
1: Okay. Now, one of the things that you found suspicious was uh, concerned Riggy's first apparition of Abraham Lincoln when he was four years old. And he's told that story on a number of podcasts, but on uh, Stories of the Supernatural, he told it a little differently. And so let's listen to that and hear what he had to say.
4: When I was four years old, um, I had my first apparition. Wow. Mm, It scared their out of me. Was it a stranger? It wasn't a family member or anything like that? No. Okay. It wasn't at all. It was someone that I didn't know. But this person came to me and I had fallen asleep that night out on the sofa and about 3 o'clock in the morning and here comes that 3 o'clock you know. Yes. um, The bewitching hour. Yes. And, and all the once this person was standing in front of me, paralyzed, I was scared. I was four years old. Oh, my God. I didn't know. Just, it was a gentleman. And he was very kind and very soft-spoken to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was scared because all the once I woke up thinking that someone was looking at me. And even at four years old, I could feel things like that. He right. didn't understand it, of course. And when I opened my eyes here this gentleman was standing in front of me, and like I said, he was very loving and very kind and he was whispered softly to me and told me that everything was going to be okay. and that to me, um, to help and to guide me um, on my way through this paranormal or spiritual, and a four years old, everyone. I had no idea what. Karen I was, was about at. to say. That's pretty heavy food. for a four year old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God. Yeah. Mm. You know, I was scared. I almost peed myself, and um, <laughs> and I tried to call out for my mommy, <laughs> and and I couldn't call for my mom. And I remember the gentleman, and his name was Lucas. He finally told me his name was Lucas, okay. and, he, and Lucas calmed me down, and again said everything was. Everything will be fine. And I remember his parting words were, follow your spirit, follow your passion.
1: So what leapt out at you about that, where it was different than what he had originally said in the other podcasts?
3: So because the, there
1: are some similarities and some differences right, there.
3: Right. There, there's a lot of similarities. And when you sometimes he he has to go to the bathroom. Sometimes he just woke up um, on the couch. That, on the couch, yeah. That didn't really concern me. What concerned me was that in the majority of other podcast interviews that he's done, the spirit that he claims to see is Abraham Lincoln. And he he recognized him right away. And I mean, in most interviews, he actually makes a joke because he's like, well, I'm from Illinois and and everybody has a picture of Lincoln in their house. That's the way it is. So I knew him immediately. I recognized him. But he never says Lincoln spoke to him. Pretty much uh, Lincoln just nods at him. And Robert takes that as a uh, affirmation of his powers and his supernatural abilities and that he can do all this stuff and everything's going to be fine. So he repeats that over and over again. And then when this one, I actually listened to it twice because I heard it and I was like, wait a minute. That's that's not Abraham Lincoln. That's Lucas. That's a completely different name. He's claiming he doesn't know this person, which that sticks out to me. I mean, if
1: I, whereas he
3: did know who Lincoln was. Right. Right. And at four years old, um, at four years old, if I woke up at 3 a.m. and to a stranger in my house, I would be screaming. I mean, that's just me. I I would be screaming. And mom, dad, help, you know, not. Oh, OK. You know, Lucas, a nice stranger. He's going to come talk to me. Great. Uh, So, yeah, that that's a big contradiction there. Uh, That's where the story. That's the I think that's the earliest time that he talks about it. I believe that was in 2019. And I had one one other podcast that I had listened to that was from 2018. So like three months before in December of 2018. And I don't think he mentions. I don't have a a notation here in my notes uh, about him mentioning. Uh, Abraham Lincoln. So I think this is the first time he tells his origin story, at least from the podcast that I found. And then after that, it changes. It goes to Abraham Lincoln. I don't know why.
1: So we have the two basic narratives. They're both about his first paranormal experience, his first apparition. They both occur at four years old, they both occur at 3 a.m. In one version, he wakes up and is frozen with fear on the couch. He sees a person he does not know, and then that person uh, tells him his name is Lucas and then encourages him on this paranormal path. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the other narrative, he wakes up and gets out of bed and goes towards the bathroom. He sees Abraham Lincoln, who he does know. Abraham Lincoln does not say anything, but nods supportively to him, which he says he doesn't know what that didn't know what that meant at the time. But later he took it as affirmation that he should go on this paranormal path. And then he talks about going to getting get in bed with his parents, which he doesn't mention here. So that changes. So too. Oh, does it? OK, so that
3: changes because he sometimes. just didn't, didn't mention it here. Sometimes he uh, he calls out or he, he doesn't. So I don't have the, those notes on there because that was a, a minor detail, which I should have noted, but I didn't. But at one point, he says that he just went to bed. Um, he bypasses going to his parents altogether. Uh, one version, his mom's home, but his dad's not. And I think dad is working late or has a second job or something like that. Uh, in, in another... In, in the one that Dom and I played
1: at the top of this episode, his dad is definitely home because he he records his dad asking, uh, "What did he want? What did Lincoln want?" and laughing. Right. Yeah, right. so that's another change.
3: And there, yeah, and when you listen to a, a few in a row, even that changes. As in, like sometimes they laugh at him and say, "No, you didn't see anything," and in other times they're really supportive uh, and then tells him to go to bed. And then, of course, mom the next morning takes takes robert to her mother so robert's grandmother and they both go to see this old woman That it was a they, brouhaha the, of, yeah, the a white, white witch, witch. Yeah. yeah and even that i don't have the details in front of me but even that changes slightly the details on that mm-hmm. um but it, that's a constant theme these details change over time now is,
1: um, go flags. ahead
3: it, yeah. they, they're just red flags you know the the a story that you know well, that you live through. Yes, I can see once in a while the story, the, the details, details will change, but this gentleman has been saying this over and over and over again um, for since 2018, well, the end of 2018 to now. So for three, four, three years, four years, he's been reciting the same stories. You would think they would become consistent, but they do not. Um, they keep changing. So go ahead. Sorry. Now, now
1: Riggy claims to have two master's degrees, one in forensic psychiatry and one in clinical social work. But after listening to him on podcasts, you began to suspect that he wasn't a psychologist at all. What made you think that?
3: I have the pleasure of, of knowing several psychologists, and I speak to them often. I consult with them on, on some of the projects that I do, and I even do a, a podcast with one of them. And you get used to not, I, I don't want to say this wrong here. There's there's a few things that, that stood out to me. One was the way he spoke. Uh, not that unintelligent people or intelligent people speak differently. Sometimes they do. He wasn't using the proper terminology. Uh, he was he's describing psychological conditions or trying to. He wasn't using the proper terms. And he would often say, and stuff, that the child, a child was suffering from hallucinations and or stuff. Um, And the end stuff just bothered me. It was like, well, somebody that knew what they were talking about should be able to articulate that, the symptoms, the signs, and what clinical terms there are for it. And he wasn't using any of this. He wasn't using proper terms. He was using he was trying to almost like I know I'm going all over the place here, but uh, it kind of made me feel like I was watching an episode of CSI where they really sensationalize things that the science behind it and it doesn't really happen like that. When you talk to forensic interviewers or or forensic uh, scientists, they're like, no, it doesn't happen like that or it doesn't happen that quickly or you know, there's so much more work and so much more time and we don't get to it. Things like that. This wasn't what I was getting from Rigi. I was getting somebody that probably watched TV and was borrowing terms or or definitions and descriptions from a dramatization rather than real life and academia. So that, that kind of threw me. He wasn't talking the way I, I would expect him to talk.
1: In your article, you point out that he even misuses the the term for a field he alleges allegedly has a master's degree in. He claims to have a master's in forensic psychiatry, and then he uh, he misdefines what that is. In an interview he did with KZUM Radio, he had this to say:
2: "Robert, tell us about being a forensic psychologist. What what, what is that? that title?" Well. Forensics basically means that medical technology taken into the courtroom. That's all it means. That's all it is. It is a fancy name just for that. But it is even more detailed in what also entails. It entails working with the criminal mind. Okay, so forensics does not itself
1: have anything to do with medical technology. And, and, and even if we are generous and say, well, he meant forensic psychiatry. Forensic psychiatry doesn't have anything to do with bringing medical technology into a courtroom. It seems like he's confusing forensic psychology with other branches of forensic science, like what you see on TV shows like police procedurals, to go to your point, which can involve things like running medical tests to determine blood type or DNA analysis or something. But that's not what forensic psychology is, is it?
3: No. So I did look it up and I went to the American Psychological Association and got their definition of it. And it says they describe it as the distinctiveness of forensic psychology is its advanced knowledge and skills reflecting the intersection of legal theory, procedures and law with clinical issues, practice and ethics. Um, Which is a little bit different than saying it's basically medical technology taken into the courtroom. That's not how it, it, it is. Um, the more I understood it, the more it was legal issues. Um, yeah. And, and, and I it, don't want to get into it, that.
1: Is someone competent to care for a child right. or right. are they competent to stand trial or are they legally insane?
3: Yeah. I, 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 I was going to say, I didn't want to get into it too much because I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm not one. <laughs> I wasn't trained I so I don't want to speak out of term. but yeah, I mean, it, it was a big difference than what he described on that interview. So that also told me, like, that was a big red flag. Like, this guy does not know what he's doing. He, he's he's taking it from TV and and kind of like what you said. It's almost like he's watching TV and he's grouping a whole bunch of fields together and saying, "Oh, this is what I'm doing," and and it's not. It's not what he's doing
1: when uh you first asked me about Ricky you sent me a link to one of his podcast appearances and and listening to it i noticed he misused a, another psychological term uh it, in this case uh the term was echolalia which refers to when one person repeats what another person is saying, you know, like you see kids doing this, like stop talking like me, stop talking like me. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And that's why it's called echolalia, which means echo talking in Greek. Um, It's a psychological term because um, repeating statements that other people make is associated with psychological conditions and developmental conditions, including for like children who don't grow out of this phase. Because it is normal to have some of that as kids, but Riggy had a completely different understanding of what echolalia is, um, and he repeated it on more than one occasion on the on our paranormal podcast. He says,
2: "There's something called echolalia. Do you know what that is? What is it? I don't. Okay. Echolalia. We have two sets of vocal cords. One of them is dormant." and the other one we're using tonight, right? Okay? The demon can use both vocal cords at the same time. And it is incredible when that happens, because, like, I'm talking to you this very moment, and then all a once another voice will be coming out at almost the same time that I'm talking. You know what I mean? And that's called echolalia, okay? Tibetan monks have learned how to do that when they chant, so if you ever hear a Tibetan monk, and that's campers, why it sounds like it, that. That's called echolalia.
1: Yeah. So what he's referring to there is a practice known as throat singing. And it is used. It's sometimes called tuvan throat singing because they do it in tuva. But and it is a kind of weird vocal quality. It's not really exactly the way he describes it, but in terms of how it's produced, but it's a perfectly normal human ability if you train yourself to do it. And it's used in different cultures. It's, so it's not just Tibetan. It's used in other places in the world, but it does create a kind of odd vocal effect, but it has nothing to do with the psychological term echolalia, which is a, if he's got a master's in in uh, in psychology, he should know the psychological meaning of this term. So I found that very suspicious.
3: Yeah. And that was a good point that you brought up I, when we talked about it um, before I published it, You brought that up. I wanted to add that. I wanted to include it, but I couldn't. Uh, The the article is just too long already. Yeah. Um, But I think that's going to be part uh, of a a lecture that I'm going to put together uh, and include this case, because I think this is a really good case to to talk about and study and let people know not only the dangers of certain people out there, but, you know, what I did and and who I reached out to like you uh, about advice on how to proceed and how to approach people. So, yeah.
1: So with these doubts about hearing this guy with a master's in psychology misusing psychological terms, it'd be reasonable to check his degrees. And at least one of his master's degrees is said to have been granted by the University of Florida in 1980. And, you know, universities don't like it when people claim to have been granted a degree by them like that they've never granted. Oh, yeah, I got my doctorate at this university. And so they'll if you if you contact the university, they'll confirm, did we grant this guy a degree? So did you check on his degrees? And what did you find?
3: I did. Uh, I looked into it. The first thing I did was call the University of Florida because that's where he said he got his degree. And the way he says it, he says it very uh, it's very rehearsed. And he says that he he is a uh, he has two master's degree degrees one in forensic psychology and one in clinical social work and from the University of Florida. And that's the way he kind of flows and, and says it. So I assume that both are from the University of Florida because he makes no mention of any other university. So
1: I, even if only one of them was from the University of Florida, they'd still have him on record for that.
3: Right, right. So I contacted the registrar uh, at the University of Florida and I, I sent them an email. I explained exactly what I was doing what I was looking for, and they gave me a response. They emailed me back and said that they had no one by that name on record. But there is a caveat. Um because let me see, let me make sure. Please be aware if a student was born in 1955 or earlier, their record may need to be moved to, to our online system, meaning that it wasn't updated to their online system yet. And Rigi was born in 1954. So for for it to be in their online system he would have had to actually call the university and have it transferred. So if he never did that and assuming that he does have um a master's degree from them, if he never did that then it wouldn't be online and I wouldn't be able to find it and that's that's the most that they could do for me. They could not mm-hmm. go any further.
1: So this one this records check was kind of inconclusive, but it it right. did not support his
3: claims. Exactly. Exactly. <sighs>
1: in uh uh-huh. go ahead go ahead. No, i was going to move to a new question
3: oh well the the licensor is that where you're going licensor
1: Yeah, uh, because that is where I was going to go. So in October or November of 2021, uh, Riggy said on the Bigfoot and the Bunny podcast that he was licensed in nine states as a forensic psychologist and a clinical social worker. And that's something else that should leave a paper, a public paper trail. So were you able to verify that he had such licenses, nine of them?
3: So this is interesting. This is a really interesting part because yes, on that show, he says that he has nine licenses. He, he's licensed in nine states. Yet, and I'm, I'm trying to find it here. So that was in October of 2021, where he makes that statement. And then later on in January of 2022, he says, he, and I quote here, I am licensed to practice psychology, forensic psychology, particularly in 10 states. So he upped it another one state. state. Mm-hmm. And then, let's see, uh, a week later, a week later, yes, a week later, he says on the Shadow Zone podcast that I have a master's in forensic, psychology and clinical social work. I am licensed. Now I am licensed in 12 different states. I got licensed for the state of South Dakota. So he gained three extra licenses <laughs> in the matter of what, three months. Um yeah, in three months, which is as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, after talking to several people, several psychologists about this it's it's not an easy process it's very difficult and if you're going outside of your home state where you practice it's useless unless you're actually um like an example of my friend uh tim tim's a forensic interviewer uh Tim vickers and he he's a co-host of one of my shows, but he brought it up that For me, I'm in Philadelphia, so I'm very close to Jersey and New York, New Jersey and Delaware. So if I wanted to get licensed in two other states, it would probably be beneficial for me if I was going that route because they're so close. And I could practice in, in all three states without much travel at all. I mean, I can reach New Jersey in like 20 minutes. I can reach Delaware in half an hour. So it's not a big deal. But if you don't have that convenience of being in a tri-state area then it's it's useless so i t- i i went ahead and checked anyway so what mm-hmm. i did you you so can go online b- before we go do ahead. that actually uh you also uncovered
1: that in another podcast you claimed to have 15 uh yes. licenses be licensed in 15 states although the, i understand that podcast has been taken down
3: yes uh, unfortunately there was as we were investigating this more and more uh we were contacting podcast hosts and when i say we me and uh, and taryn um who originally brought this to my attention and after learning about some of the stuff that we found uh several podcasts took that episode down where he was he was interviewed so that's kind of good it's good and bad it's good because they took it down but it's bad because that that it had information in it that we could have used um, but I now I can't quote that. I, yeah. I can't source it. So,
1: so what um, did you find when you uh, did checking and how did you check?
3: So the first thing I did was contact Florida, the state of Florida and the state of South Dakota, because these were two that he mentioned directly. And I contacted the State Department, um, Department of Health for each of them and asked Hey, uh, this is what I'm doing. I'm investigating this gentleman. He claims to have been licensed in your state as a psychologist. Uh, Is there any record of this? Can I get confirmation of this? And from Florida, uh, I got a response back from the Department of Health, the Office of Communications, and they confirmed that they were unable to find any evidence of a Robert Riege ever holding a license with the Department of Health in the state of Florida which blows a lot of his claims out of the water here uh, because, and I, I don't know if you're going to touch on this later, but he claims to have been a, uh, a criminal profile profiler in the state of Florida for 35 years. And, oh, We're, we're going to go there. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Good. So that kind of kills that. But then I, I also reached out to the uh, state of South Dakota and got the same thing, same response. They said there is no one by that name in their database. So I took it a step farther and you can go online and actually check with each state for current and past licensors. Uh, So I went to every state, I mean, all 50 50 states, all 50 states. um, I have for your viewers, (laughs) viewers that are watching it. So I went through every state and marked off whether I, uh, whether he had a license or not and everything came up negative. So no licenses, Uh, in any database whatsoever.
1: You also discovered that with a master's degree, because he doesn't claim to have a doctorate, but you discovered that with a master's degree, he might not qualify for such a license in Florida. Is that correct?
3: That is correct. Um, According to the Florida Board of Psychology, an application for licensure by examination requires more than a master's degree. Uh, quote, U.S. trained applicants, submission of your official doctoral level, Ph.D., uh, this is uh, PSID or EDD. I don't, I'm, I'm not good at all. Doctorate of education, okay. doctor of philosophy and so forth. Uh, and then transcripts in psychology as proof of graduation from a program accredited by the American Psychological Association. So, yeah, he needed a, more than a master's degree to get a license. He needed a a doctoral program um, and proof of that. So I don't think he had that because he never mentioned it. And I did I did call him. I don't know if you're going to touch on this later, but I did call him. Okay, I'll we'll get to that when we get to that.
1: (laughs) Riggy also now you mentioned he claims to have worked as a criminal profiler in Florida for 35 years for both the FBI and the Florida attorney general. So if he graduated in 1980, he would have been working as a criminal profiler in Florida until 2015. Did you which means he would live in Florida? Yes, during that period. Did you uh did you find anything in your research that would contradict the idea he was in Florida during that
3: period? So I did, and this is probably the part that I hesitated the most with because I don't like going that deep with an investigation but i did find that he has a criminal record and the criminal record comes up between let's see it it has them between 1992 and 2002 yeah Uh, actually let's let's put a pin in that for a
1: second okay Um, on a more basic level like one of the things you can do in background checks is like find out where people lived okay and um and based on research that you did, you found a bunch of his residences. Mm-hmm. And like, but he did live in Florida between 1988 and 1991. So he could have been working as a profiler in Florida then. But then in 1998, he moves to Iowa in. Uh, he he also lives for a good period in Illinois, in Peoria, Illinois. He was in Arizona. He was uh, in various other places that you could document he was living other than Florida in this time frame. Right. Which would pose challenges for how is he working as a profiler in Florida if he's not even in Florida.
3: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and these years that we have him, Um, well, yeah, you, he was in Florida for three years from 88 to 91, but we have him from 95 to 2003 in various places, Illinois, uh, Peoria is where he's from. That's where he was born. Uh, and then Phoenix, Arizona, and then back to Peoria. So he's been all over. And from my understanding, he's also lived with several people. Like I mentioned in the beginning, um, I don't know if we mentioned it while we were recording, but he did an interview with with uh, a friend of his who had mentioned that he lived with her, the friend, for a time. And not was, in Florida. Not in Florida, no. That was in, oh, where was that? That was in, oh, I hate, hate dead air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it was a radio program that he was doing, and I have it, I have it. Where do I have it? Oh, I have it in red. I have it. All this stuff highlighted. There are so many notes here. So he, let's see, interviewing. Nope, that was wrong. Oh, a woman uh, that they worked together in 1978 at Woodward, Iowa State Hospital. So he was in Iowa in 1978.
1: OK, and that would also cast doubt on his claims to have gotten a master's from the University of Florida in 1980, because master's programs are typically two years long. And if he graduated in 1980 and took the typical two years, he would have been beginning his program in Florida in 1978 when he was allegedly living with this woman and and actually several other people, in some kind of communal right. arrangement um, in in another state in Iowa in 1978.
3: There is also um, the added bonus of he didn't graduate. uh, uh, Let me backtrack and say this uh, differently. He took on extra classes. He claims to have taken on extra classes. So he stayed an extra two years. So his original graduation date should have been. 78. 78.
1: Okay, so he would have been then working on his master's from 76 to 80.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of discrepancies, mm-hmm. <laughs> as you can see. Uh, but it, I mean, this interview when it, and it comes from him, I mean, sitting right there talking and it puts him in Iowa during during the time when he was supposed to be at school mm-hmm. and learning this. So, yeah, I I have a big problem with that, too. You
1: also checked his work history because you can frequently find out what people were doing for a living during a particular period. What did you find out during this period that he claims to have been working as a criminal profiler? What was he actually doing, according to the records you
3: found? So it looks like he from 1980 up until about 2012, he was working various jobs Um from uh, like a Dynatech to, he was sales. He was doing Mm -hmm. outside sales. And I think towards the end of like 2012, he was working for a company where he was doing sales from home and, or he was taking a lot of time off. I know there's actually a a court case online that you can can bring up um, where he sued his former employee because he had taken so much time and they fired him. Mm. Um, But he, he claims he was taking care of his mother and which he probably was. I don't want to I don't want to speak anything bad about that. But uh, he took the Family Leave Act without notifying his employer. He just decided that he was going to take it <laughs> and didn't inform anyone. He just didn't show up. So that's what his defense is uh, during the court case.
1: So, going down the uh, the jobs that you were able to uncover, it looks like between 1980 and 1982, so this would have been right after his master's degree if that happened. He was working at, at a as a quality engineer at something called Intercon Engineering. Uh, he then became an inside sales accountant rep for SunSource. He became an outside sales engineering rep for th- several different companies. He later worked as post office support. He worked as an office manager. And then he also had this other at kind of at home sales job that you mentioned. And none of these are remotely in the fields of psychology or clinical social work.
3: Right. And the last one there, uh, it was a company called XPAC. And I spoke to a former coworker of his, somebody who lives in his town that knew him, that had run a ghost hunting team that Rigi was a part of. So they knew each other. And this ex uh, company is actually a company that packs tractor supplies. They packaged them and then ship them out. So that's what he was doing. He was a line worker packing tracker, tractor's supplies. So nothing to do with social work, nothing to do with psychology. Nothing to do with anything that he claims he has the uh, education background for.
1: And, of course, if you are a criminal profiler now, they say it takes one to know one. And so there might be some advantages to being a criminal and then being a criminal profiler. But I suspect the FBI and the Florida attorney general probably don't want their profilers to have a criminal record. And you discovered that he did over a period of about a decade. What can you tell us
3: there? So, yeah, I, I went digging and I was able to find from Illinois State uh, a record. He has a record and there's various things here. So you don't get too many details and I won't get into them because I just don't have them all. But you got you have the basic idea. So he was charged for theft several times. He mm-hmm. was charged for, um, let's see, Fail, fa- failure uh, to appear, failure to appear, false statements. And it was Um, false
1: statements to obtain credit. Yes. There's something like lying on a credit application and getting caught.
3: Something like that. Um, But the theft, the theft, I think, was from from what I gather, it it was pretty significant. One was uh, not too much, but the other one was, I think, was over five thousand dollar value. So I don't know exactly what the details were. Um, There was uh, one charge for interference with official acts um and throughout he served the the longest time for that that was eight so some of these
1: like were one night or a a couple weeks or three months but that was 18 months
3: yes and there was something that came up come up I, i think somebody did approach him and said you know what about this criminal history and he denied it all saying that he never did any of this that was a different person they do have on some of these, and I, I did post in my article, I did have a screenshot of, of the, uh, yeah. the uh, list of infractions. We'll and, have that too in the video version of the podcast. Okay, good. And there's on the side, on the left side, you can see the, the case number. And if you click on it, because it's a blue highlight uh, hyperlink, if you clicked on them, it went to a little bit more information. And four of the six of these have mug shots. So it was... Ah. It was definitely him. <laughs> um, you, you can't deny it. It's definitely him. Um, you see it over a decade of him growing and going through different hairstyles, but it's definitely him. You can match the facial features, and I mean, it's it's definitely him. So mm. there's no denying that. And that yes. just puts him. That puts him in in Illinois during this decade uh, between
1: 1992 and 2002. Right. Right. Yeah. And he was in jail. He was in, incarcerated seven times during their during that decade for up to 18 months at a time. Yeah. So not really the kind of person that uh, that law enforcement would typically hire as a criminal profiler. From my understanding of things. No. maybe I'm wrong about that.
3: Uh, I'm going to agree <laughs> with you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. Now, he also claims that when he was about to graduate in 1980, that he arranged for an interview with Ted Bundy and Ted Bundy had been caught uh, in 1979. In fact, he if you research the Ted Bundy case, it looked like he had a desire to get caught, that he had a desire to get caught and be executed. And that's why he went to Florida, because that Florida and Texas at the time were the two states most likely to execute you if they caught you. And so he goes to Florida in 1978. He gets caught in, he commits some crimes. He gets caught in 1979. And then by 1980, he had been convicted and given three death sentences. So he was incarcerated in in Florida in 1980. And for fans of Mysterious World, yes, we will talk about Ted Bundy in the future. Um, But he was incarcerated in Florida in 1980. So that much of Riggy's story checks out. But what did you find out about the rest of his story about interviewing Ted Bundy?
3: So he has some discrepancies. Uh, and these are gonna I'm gonna try to explain them the best I can because they do get a little confusing. <clears throat> but in one version, I'll give you the basic <clears throat> the basic uh version here, is that in one version he approaches his professor or the the chair or the head of the department again, depending on which interview. <clears throat> we, this,
1: we we played team. a we we played a clip of this when this is from 2021 we played a clip of this earlier in the show so okay. go ahead
3: uh, so uh, so it goes from him approaching the staff of the university and asking hey i want to interview ted bundy he's only like an hour or two away i want to do this and, and they this give is at him- the at the at the end of his master's program in 1980 right right at the end um, and he he gets permission to do the interview if he can get permission from everyone involved. And Riggy tells us that he sent letter. He sent letters to uh, Ted Bundy, his lawyer and the warden at the prison. And that again, depending on the interview, it's either a week later or several weeks later or something like that, that he gets responses from all three. He gets letters in the mail from all three granting permission. So, they set it up to where it's Riggy, another male uh, student, and then three female students. All so in psychology. All in psychology, five in total that are going to go do this. So, then he goes along with the story, tells about it, or tells us what goes on. And that gets graphic. I'm not going to get into that. Yeah. Um, so, in a different version, here. Let me see. The original is, version.
1: It was from 2019 on stories of the supernatural.
3: Yes. Thank you. So he says a slightly different thing. He says six months into the program. So that's already a red flag. Mm-hmm, yep. So he's six months into a two year program. And he took four to, years to, to complete. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to the end of the two year program. So that's mm-hmm. that's a discrepancy. Uh, Six months in the program, I was asked by the dean of psychology department or the chair of the department. That's what his quote is. So that these are his words. I was asked by the dean of psychology department or the chair of department. So he's not sure. Yeah, that's
1: a. Um, so, I mean, if he said dean, that would be a slip of the tongue because departments don't have deans. They have right. chairs.
3: Uh. So he was asked. Asked if he'd be interested in going and interviewing Ted Bundy. So he
1: didn't have to write anybody in this version. The the department right. head had already arranged it.
3: Right. Uh, the chair, whoever the chair is, because he doesn't give a name. Um, I really wish he gave a name, but he didn't. Uh, the chair said, Robert, it's going to be you and five other students. Not four. Not four. Five other students that have the experience with the realm of psychology. Now this this is weird. I feel weird saying this because this is Rigi's flair um mm-hmm. for the dramatic. It will be you and five other students that have the experience with the realm of psychology. That's a that's a catchphrase of his. He likes mm-hmm. saying the realm of psychology. Um, but he also says that there, there were three gentlemen and there were two ladies, two female students. So now that number has switched. Mm-hmm. It so was
1: two fem, it was three females and one male. Yes. Now it's two females and three males.
3: Yes. Uh, yeah. So that's changed. And I mean, these might be minor changes to some people, but to me, they stand out. They stand out as as a story that's not consistent. Mm-hmm. And again, that story evolves, uh, over time. Over how many times he tells it, it changes with each telling. And again, it, it gets into the areas I don't want to get into.
1: Yeah, well, it's something I mean, it's it, people can have bad memories. They can have failing memories right. over time, but there should be ways to check. You know, I mean, they keep visitor logs at prisons. Uh, were you able to find anything out about that?
3: Unfortunately, not. I did contact the prison. I talked to a Jeffrey McKellen, McCle- McClellan, 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 who is the assistant warden. Um, and he informed me that unfortunately they don't have any records from that far back. So they couldn't confirm or deny, uh, the visitation and he really didn't say anything else. Um, I tried to press for like more questions, uh, like, you know, how would one go about setting up an interview like that with somebody like that and stuff. But he's like, no, we don't have any records. I can't help you. So, I mean, he was nice professional, but unfortunately it didn't lead anywhere.
1: It's still suspicious, though. I mean, if you if you're in a program for four years, or even two years, but you build up to this as kind of like your final project or something, meeting with Ted Bundy would be a big thing for someone getting a master's in psychology. You would, I would, you would remember. Did this happen at the beginning or the end? And did yeah. you have to do the legwork to write all the people, or
3: did someone offer you a slot on the team? Um, There would also be lots of notes. mm -hmm. I I would, I would suspect, I mean, I, if I interview somebody, I'm always writing down uh, one of the the stipulations that Reggie tells us that he had was that he was not allowed to take notes. Uh, No, no notes, no pictures, nothing like that. He couldn't do anything. He could just come in and talk.
1: Sherlock Holmes deals with that in the case of the missing evidence. Yeah.
3: Yes. Uh, Anytime
1: someone says we can't, we 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 had this, we could have had this evidence, but it's all gone, or we weren't allowed to take anything that would be evidence. Immediately
3: suspicious of that. Yeah, and uh, that that really bothered me because when I did start, I I started looking into it a little bit. Like, what's
1: what's the point of interviewing Ted Bundy if you if you can't take notes for psychological insights that'll be useful? in a paper or something.
3: Right. Uh, Someone that's going through and getting their master's in psychology would understand that your memory sucks. (laughs) Mm. I mean, you're, you're, you're not going to remember everything in detail. Even if you try, I mean, you have to write it down. You have to record it somehow. And there wasn't, there was a reporter that had snuck in and I forget his name. He's, he's the one guy I think that actually interviewed Ted Bundy in, in jail. Um, And he wrote an expose for I I forget what magazine that he I don't have those notes in front of me, but he was in and I think he he had to go undercover and say he was part of the uh, defense team um, because they wouldn't let just a reporter come in. So he went under that uh, that that idea and he was able to take copious amounts of notes like and, and record it. Uh, This reporter, and again, I apologize for not having the name, but he apparently has a whole bunch of audio tapes, cassette tapes of this interview. So I don't understand why there would be a stipulation that he couldn't take notes or record it. Yeah. And even if you couldn't at the time, I would have a notebook outside in the car and write everything down as soon as I could. But we have nothing.
1: So in the 2019 version of his story from Stories of the Supernatural he places this 6 months into his into his master's program which would either be 1976 or 1978. Right. And at neither of those times was Ted Bundy even in custody because he wasn't caught until 1979. And um do you but then in 2021 He's now moved it to 19, his interview with Ted Bundy to 1980 at the end of his master's program. Do you think he shifted that because he realized somebody might do the math and realize he was claiming to have interviewed Bundy when Bundy was not yet in custody?
3: It's definitely possible. And I I think you're on to something there. When I go back and forth and, and I think about the audience that his interviews will bring in, um, they are probably mostly believers who will not fact check anything. Yeah, there will be first... some
1: crime fans in the audience,
3: though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, when you first brought that up, I, I was like, uh, I don't know, I don't know if he's smart enough to do that. But the more I thought about it, as, as we've been talking tonight, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you're right. He, he probably did. He probably somebody probably pointed it out to him and said, "Hey, your uh, your interview, I heard it, but you know, he wasn't in jail then." And that clicked and he changed it for the next interview. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're on to something there.
1: Okay. Now, he also talks on his podcasts about his involvement in the exorcisms of Kevin and Vivian. Uh, in the podcast you listen to, he says he was convinced that Kevin was possessed when the demon was able to preternaturally reveal that Riggy had been adopted, that this wasn't a publicly known fact, it, he says it wasn't on his Facebook page and so forth. Uh, how did you investigate this claim and what did you
3: find? So I employed a very, very deep dive technical method to figure out how someone could possibly obtain that information. I went on Facebook. That's Uh, what I did.
1: (laughs) Uh, I I love how in your article you say, I employed a deviously complex research technique honed by my years of investigational insight. I scrolled through Riggy's Facebook page.
3: That's it. (laughs) I cannot tell you how many things I have uncovered by just going through someone's Facebook account. Um, Because I say this all the time. We are not anywhere near as private as we think we are. And there's so much information out there you can find. and the first thing I did was, well, in one of the interviews, and I forget how many or which ones, but he does say uh, that, you know, I am adopted. And there's no way he could have known that. It's not even on Facebook. And that that clicked. I was like, all mm-hmm. right, well, let's see.
1: Yeah. So now, yeah. he made he made that. Apparently, he he indicates the exorcism took place in twenty seventeen. Um, based on various factors, he says, but you found something on his Facebook page in 2015 that did mention adoption, right?
3: Yes. Yes. And again, yeah, various things that he said, um, were like during one interview, he would say, well, this happened two years ago, or this happened a year and a half ago. And by the date of the interview itself, you know, you backtrack and it's like, all right, 2017, this is when it happened. So as I scrolled through and I mean, it sounds easy, but you're sitting here here like, scroll, 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 scroll. Um, But in 2015, specifically November 23rd of 2015, Robert posted on his Facebook page, which is still public, that I am so very grateful, so very blessed by being adopted by my aunt and uncle, they chose to adopt me. And I was taken away from my biological parents by the state of Illinois because of severe neglect. If it wasn't for my wonderful and loving Italian family and especially my Italian grandmother. So there's a lot more information here, but yeah, this is gold. This yeah. is gold. I mean, it, it, everything you need. If I was a, a, a cold reader or a hot reader, a, a psychic hot reader, this is right. gold. We, so. we should
1: explain that term for people who may not be aware. Cold reading is where someone picks up clues about you it's a stage magician's trick. They they simulate like telepathy or other psychic functioning by picking up clues about you and making deductions on the spot, um, or they throw out general statements they know someone in the audience is going to fit. Mm-hmm. um hot reading is where they research the people in the audience in advance um and and that frequently these days means going on facebook and and looking for obscure things about people that they can then use as part of their performance and this would be cold reading so if uh, hot reading so hot reading. if yeah. if kevin w- is even a real person and he wanted so we're assuming kevin's a real person um And he wanted to convince Riggy that he had a demon possessing him. He could have hot read Riggy and gone on his Facebook page looking for obscure things like, oh, two years ago, he mentioned this. I bet he doesn't remember mentioning that. So I'll tell him that he's adopted.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I mean, timing is everything, too. This post was in November of 2015. So it's at the end of the year. So it's not it's not exactly two years. But I mean, it's close enough that if you were just scrolling by and by the time I got to this post, Ree wasn't posting as much as he does today. So, I mean, in 2017, if I was looking for somebody and scroll through it, it probably would have only taken me a minute or so to get to this post, whereas it took me probably 15 minutes (laughs) to go through and find find this 15, 20 minutes that most people won't do, Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I was able to find that, and that told me right away, like, all right, it is posted. It is out there. So that kind of negates what he said, that there was no way he could have found out. There is a way.
1: Now, it's at this point that I briefly come into the story. Um, Why did you decide to contact me?
3: Well, because he says that he was part of two exorcisms, as, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. And I wanted to confirm whether he was or not, and I didn't know I mean, I know how to directly do that. You call the the diocese, you call the archdiocese, you call the people involved, and say, "Hey, you know, did this happen?" But I wasn't sure how to approach it, mm-hmm. and I had recently talked to you. I we re- recently met because of uh, the the Lloyd Arabak's course, um, and then I think I think you were on my my podcast for yeah. I think before that, yeah, I think you were just on there, and we had talked, and it, it was. It was great. I mean, you're a very knowledgeable person and more in tune with this than I was. So that's that's part of my job. Consult experts, you know, and I saw you as an expert uh, uh, consultant on this. And I said, hey, I have to contact the Diocese of Peoria and I have to contact the Archdiocese of Chicago. Do you know (laughs) how to do this? (laughs) Like, who do I talk to? Who do I ask for? How do I approach this? I don't want to just call and say hey, uh, I'm checking on an exorcism. Yeah, What's up? <laughs> I, I didn't know how to approach it, so I reached yeah. out to you.
1: And you also sent me a link to one of the Riggy podcasts, which I listened to, and I gave you my initial impressions. And one of the things that uh, he talked about was the priest that he said performed the exorcisms. And uh, here's what he said also on our paranormal
2: podcast. The priest who did the exorcism Father Michael, I don't know if you heard of Father Michael, but he is from Loyola Medical Center and University in Maywood, Illinois. He's a Jesuit. He is the same priest that did the exorcism on the house, the demon house that Zach Bagans had bought Mm -hmm. in Indiana. Okay, And, um, And so I got to meet Father Michael and assisted him with five other priests and seminarians.
1: Now, you'd already identified this Father Michael as Father Michael Maginot, uh, who Riggy says on podcast is a good friend of his. Uh, and while we were talking, I looked him up and I immediately found Father Maginot's webpage on uh, St. Stephen Martyr Catholic Church in Maryville, Indiana, uh, Indiana. So that much of his story did check out. Father Michael or Father Maginot is a real person. Uh, right. Riggy also said that the exorcism took place not in Father Maginot's church in Maryville, but in a Jesuit monastery attached to Loyola University Medical Center, right. I then suggested some ways that you could approach Father Maginot and the diocese that might be you know productive ways of eliciting information. What happened when you did that
3: so unfortunately i i didn't get any information from either Chicago or Peoria? Um, and
1: I'm not really surprised by that because, for confidentiality reasons, a diocese would be very hesitant to confirm something like that.
3: Um, right. But the, uh, uh-huh. the only thing that bothered me a little bit, I, I did call the Diocese of Peoria, uh, Illinois, where he lives, and I left messages. Um, so I didn't actually talk to anyone. I left messages twice. And never received any reply, which, again, I mean, based on our conversation, I I was kind of expecting that. However, when I called the Archdiocese of Chicago, I did talk to somebody. And they assured me that it was going to come. Uh, actually, you know what? No, no, I'm getting it mixed up. I'm sorry. Archdiocese of Chicago never called me back. The Diocese of Peoria did. Um, they, I did talk to somebody there. I apologize. I, I messed that mm-hmm. up. Um, I talked to the Bishop's secretary and I called once, talked to her, left a message and she assured me he would get back to me. And then I called again a week later and talked to the same woman. She remembered me and because probably because nobody really calls about exorcism, um, or it's probably a rare occurrence, but she's like, yeah, you called last week, right? He has all your information. He's going to call you back and never did Hmm. so that that upset me a little bit because i i understand if you don't want to give out information that's one thing you know tell me i can respect that but don't tell me you're going to call me back and then not Mm -hmm. um i think that's just unprofessional and and that's just from me so Mm -hmm. i didn't get anywhere with either diocese um and there could be any number of reasons
1: i mean bishops can be Can forget stuff like I mean I don't know how many emails I have not been able to return just because I forget.
3: I get it. I I I understand that. I mean I I guess it's just like it's easy to to ignore an email or a or a message on your phone, Mm -hmm. but when I get that direct confirmation, like yeah, they're going to call you back. I I, does
1: raise expectations.
3: Yeah, Uh, I was a little bit hopeful, but still not totally. Uh, So then I reached out directly to Father Michael. Uh, because I did find a phone number for him. I was able to call his parish, which is funny because I think in the clip that you played where Rigi is talking about him, Rigi refers to him as a priest that's associated as a Jesuit priest associated with that loyola am I University right? Medical Center. Yes, loyola. Which he's not. Um so that was incorrect. But I did talk to Father Michael and
1: Yeah, in fact if I recall correctly, Father Michael has a history in canon law. And has done work in that capacity, like for his diocese, but not medical work or not like been a hospital chaplain.
3: Right. Right. Uh, The first thing I asked him, I got on the phone to him. I explained who I was and what I was calling for. So that's something I always do. I never hide what I'm doing. Uh, But I asked, you know, hey, you know, I'm calling about Robert Riege. He he seems to be a good friend of you uh, of yours. And the father Michael responded with who I don't recall knowing a Robert <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that kind of set the stage right there. No. Uh, we had a nice conversation. Very nice gentleman. Um, very pleasant to talk to. And I really, I, I related all the details that I knew. I sent him a link to mm-hmm. one of the interviews where he he's specifically mentioned and,
1: and we uh, should point out that, you know, like with saying, oh, yeah, my good friend so-and-so, well, you may think of yourself as someone's friend, but to them, they may not remember you. Right. And and so that's a possibility. So it's good that you sent him further details so that if, like, Riggy had just slipped his memory, these would serve as reminders that would allow him to place the incident and remember.
3: Right. Cause I mean, I do that. I I meet a lot of people. And sometimes I don't remember if you tell me your name, if you send me a message, like, Oh yeah, we had a great time. Thanks. Thanks for hanging out. Like I'm always looking at my wife going, who is this? Do I know them? Do I know them? And I don't try to be mean about it. I'm not, I'm not like that. It's just that I forget, you,
1: you know, it's kind of scary, but you know who had a really good memory for the names of everybody he met and he was, he impressed others with his memory of, 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 of people he had just met and what their names were Ooh. the Roman Emperor Nero. Ooh. They, the other Romans noted, wow, he really remembers your name. And, uh, that could come in good in handy in a variety of circumstances. Right. Like when you reward people or, or when you want to execute people.
3: <laughs> See, this is what I like <laughs> talking to you. You come up with little, little facts like that. I didn't know that before. That's awesome. Uh, so yeah, I, I did talk to Father Michael, and he uh, he watched or he listened to the interview overnight, and he called me back the next morning and said, "Hey, you know this? I am the person he's talking about. Definitely no, there's no doubt about it. He's talking about me." Yeah. He, I, he was and, in the documentary about the Demon House yes, and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. Um. So according to Father Michael, he does not know Robert Riggie at all. Does not recall ever meeting him. Um. He did not perform any exorcism on a Kevin um, to his knowledge. And he also uh, uh, stated firmly that he would never do an exorcism outside of his church. Uh, so that pretty much solidified, like this is a really big plot hole in yeah. reading story, really big. Um, I didn't contact the, the university hospital um, because I figured uh, I can go. I, I went far enough and he, with this. You've
1: already got a denial from the yeah. principal from the principal person involved. So, right. yeah. Now, I understand he also told you that some of the details about like how the exorcism would have worked were accurate that Riggy claimed. But he could have just looked those up, like read a book about exorcism. Right. But then other details that he claimed about how the exorcism would have worked were false, that they that they were wrong. So it that would cast further doubt on him being an eyewitness to any exorcism
3: if yeah. he's getting parts of the process wrong. Yeah. Um he he didn't go into detail and and that's cool. And they he, they usually won't. Yeah. Right, right. But there's some things um I, there were some things about cleaning up the the gentleman um mm-hmm. after certain things. Personal care. Yeah, personal care that Father Michael's like, no, we we wouldn't be doing that. Um and Riggy claimed that they all of them did it. <laughs> that mm-hmm. that the priest and Robert took part in that. And he's like, no, no, this isn't. That would not happen. Um, and there were other details. Um, mm-hmm. about the length of it and going for so many hours in a row. And and there's there was a lot of details with that.
1: Mm-hmm. And I understand that he ultimately told you he doesn't think that this exorcism happened. Is that correct?
3: That is correct. That okay. over our phone call at, at the end, I. I was pretty much making pointed questions like, all right, so you're absolutely sure you have never met him. You didn't partake in this. You didn't. OK, good. I just wanted a concrete answer. And yeah, at the end, he's like, I don't really think this ever happened. Um, listening to the details. I don't think it happened at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, all right, good. That, that's good enough for me. Um,
1: and he asked you to pass on a message to Ricky to say, please stop using my name.
3: Yes. Yes, he did. Because he didn't want to get involved. Um, Father Michael, I think he's got enough. I think he got enough slack from participating in the the, that demon house. house Uh Yeah. So he didn't want to get involved with another another person like this. Um, So he asked me to pass on the message just to inform Riggy to stop using his name um, that he's aware of what Riggy is doing. And please just stop. And that's what I did.
1: And as we mentioned in the segment with Dom, Riggy, does give out his phone number a lot. Um, And you tried calling him. So have you gotten any response from Riggy?
3: I have not. Uh, I called three times. Uh, I called three times February 12th, February 17th, and February 27th. And I also emailed him. His email stopped working, so I got that sent back to me. But I left messages uh, on his phone. Gave my name, my number, exactly why I was calling and basically saying, I want to talk to you about all these claims so that you can provide some kind of evidence to back them up. That's what I'm looking for. I didn't say anything about trying to expose him or, you know, make him look foolish or anything like that. I want to see it. If you have your master's degrees, I want to see them. I, I would like to see them, please. If you have because he claims to have. Uh, the 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 letters from ted bundy not just one um he has several because he became pen pals with them he also has from other serial killers He mentioned broke. john wayne
1: gacy in one interview. Yes. he said he had a letter from him
3: yeah uh so i'd like to see them you know because these are important important papers you know this would prove that you had something to do with it uh if we could get it authenticated, that would be a whole new yeah. thing. But I would be willing to do it. I'd, I'd even pay for, for someone to authenticate them, um, or not authenticate them. Either way, I, I would do that or offer any kind of uh, just any kind of proof that his claims were real. Uh, for the exorcism, he claims to have a, a videotape, a VHS tape of the, of the exorcism. Oh,
1: that is completely implausible.
3: And... <laughs> Um, one of the things he says was that now the video is at the Vatican and they use it to uh instruct other his priests co- his copy, not just a not copy, just, but no, 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 his a copy, copy? A okay, copy okay. of this. So he still has a copy of it. Yeah, that's he, that's not true. He, um, the um, the character Kevin, and then that's what I'm going to refer to it as because I really don't think Kevin exists. Um. um, apparently, Kevin has a copy of it, and depending on what interview it's it's either Kevin watched it or Kevin didn't watch it. So yeah, somewhere there's allegedly a videotape that I would, I would like mm-hmm. to say, because if they gave it to Robert, it's not so private.
1: Yeah. Well, you they know? didn't give it to Robert. He's, he's yeah. definitely lying about that. So we have this guy who, um who makes claims that at best are unverifiable. About his past that appear to uh, contradict what can be established about his past he's he's talking on podcasts about his relationships with serial killers and how he exchanges correspondence with them. He's talking about his participation in exorcisms. And he is talking about working with children who display psychic functioning and children who are dying under hospice care.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think parents should be wary of employing him in these capacities?
3: Yes, uh, absolutely. I, I, As far as I know with the hospice care, it sounds like he volunteers a hospital uh, at a hospice a hospice yeah. yeah for children and he goes in there i don't know what he does i've seen a few pictures that's another disturbing thing where he he constantly shares pictures of him with the children or just the children with the podcast that he goes on and Ugh. he's very insistent um on them sharing these pictures and that's one thing my friend taryn i i commend her on she, she wouldn't do it he kept mentioning like Oh, I sent you pictures earlier. Go ahead and put them up, put them up on screen. And she's like, no, mm-hmm. no, I'm not going to do that. Um, but yeah, with, with that, so the hospice, I, I didn't verify that yet. And, and I'm still looking into it, but I'm trying to find exactly which one. I don't know if that's a, a real volunteer work. And if it is, and he's not doing anything we see in the, video, the interviews, I'm still uneasy about it because mm-hmm. of everything else. I mean, we've gone through his story. We've picked out things that are falsified, that are fabricated, that are embellished, that change and contradict each other. This is not an honest person. Um, With other factors that, again, we won't get into, I would not leave anyone, especially children, but anyone alone with this gentleman. I I would not. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't feel comfortable being in a room alone with him. Um. Just because I I don't I don't want to get into that because, yeah, then I'm going to get really, really um, uh, angry. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I don't want to be that way.
1: Speaking for myself, I mean, I would I would there's so much wrong with this guy's story. And there is so much that sounds unhealthy here that I would not want to I, I would not recommend anybody have involvement with this guy. And if I had kids, I would never let him within a mile of them.
3: Yeah. So maybe I don't know if we should explain it a little bit, because when he does his interviews, he does at the end, he wraps it up saying uh, he starts talking about the children of the paranormal. That's his term. Mm -hmm. And apparently he mentors uh, 15 plus or minus, depending on on the interview, children that claim to be
1: have some psychic. kind of psychic experiences yeah. some kind of yeah. psychic
3: experiences I mean one interview he goes so far to say um, the one the one's uh, young girl is uh, psychokinetic or telekinetic mm-hmm. for, for movie terms she can yeah. move stuff all around at will and I mean the way she he describes it it's like this, this she has a career in movies because she would be <laughs> excellent at horror mm-hmm. movies and all mm-hmm. kinds of sci-fi movies she would be excellent with it but We don't get a name, which is good because it's still a child, but we don't get any other information that we can verify. Um, But he talks about encouraging parents that if you have a child that has behavioral problems or something and the doctors aren't helping, and he really really gets negative on doctors um, Mm -hmm. at at some points, where I I don't think a professional uh, forensic psychologist should be doing that. But he kind of makes it sound like doctors don't know everything. They don't know how to treat your child. If they're having these problems where they think they have powers or they're seeing ghosts and demons and they're they're misbehaving or acting out or running away, you should contact him instead of a doctor. Yeah. So Um, that's a bad idea. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: So. Uh, the yeah. fact that he's appeared on so many podcasts over the last several years, and this is only coming out as a result of your investigation now what is what what advice do you have for podcasters and podcast listeners to a typical paranormal podcast
3: uh, research research your guest uh there there's a habit there's a trend where One podcast host will listen to other podcasts. I mean, that's something I do. I listen to podcasts all the time. And you hear somebody that's interesting on a show and you want them on your show. You want to interview them. That's great. But I think there's a difference between like what you do, what I do, and what a lot of these paranormal themed podcasts do. They will listen to someone, immediately send them a, a Facebook message and say, hey, I have a podcast, be on my show. And that's it. That's, that's the research they do, which is non-existent. Whereas somebody like you and I, we will spend a lot of time researching this. And I know, I know for a fact that you went over my article, like with a fine-tooth comb, and you checked all my references and stuff and went through, and, and that's great. I, I encourage that. You even pointed out a mistake for me so that I can fix, which is great. But I also spend time uh, researching a guest for like a week before they're on. So if I know I'm a, I have a guest, I do background checks. Um, I, I probably go overboard with what I do. But my advice to anyone hosting a show would be spend at least five minutes. Google their name without paranormal shows, because you, you put in Robert Riggi and you get just nothing but paranormal shows. Yeah, Um, there's a there's a
1: there there are operators you can use on like Google, like a minus sign to exclude words like paranormal or psychic or medium.
3: But check them out and and Mm -hmm. see if they're legit. You know, if something if a red flag comes up, pursue it. And I think that's the biggest flaw with the the paranormal themed podcast that they don't do any research. They they take their guests at face value. And, I mean, everything we learned about Rigi, about his his interviews and stuff, came from him. There's there's nothing to verify. There's nothing to back up. We can't verify stuff unless you start really digging. Um, and this is a potential danger, danger because so many of these podcasts, and, again, there's, uh, there's at least, I would say, like, 25, 30 that I went through that featured him. And that's 25 to 30 times he was promoted as something positive for your children to contact him. And that is disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Very disturbing. So desperate parents will do desperate things and they will, they will reach out to someone with the, even with the false sense of hope. And they might even know it's a false sense of hope, but they're still going to reach out for that slim chance that it might help their child. And if that's the case, with this, if if one of Robert's uh, interviews reaches w- one of these desperate parents, that could potentially put their child in danger. Mm-hmm. And I say potentially because I, I don't know for sure, mm-hmm. but that's the impression that I get.
1: Now, uh, I want to be fair to people here because in this episode, we have done a look at the evidence concerning one person who claims to be a psychic and a medium. And the evidence suggests he's a fabulist, that he's a fraud. Um, at least that's how the evidence looks to me. Does that mean that all people who claim to be psychics or mediums are frauds?
3: No, no, not at all. Uh, it, it, my philosophy is everything is a case by case example. You know, I mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to, I don't generalize like that. I don't stereotype mm-hmm. like that just because one guy uh, who maybe these outrageous claims is found to, be false or a fraud doesn't mean everyone is, and I mean i have I have many friends that claim to be psychic and/ or mediums, and we get along great. They know my perspective, I know their perspective, sometimes we get together, we have good conversations, we talk about what's going on and and ways that I could duplicate it or replicate their things, or maybe i can't i don 't know, but it doesn't mean that everyone is a fraud. Yeah. And I and, and, and just overall, I don't think I don't have that that belief that everyone is a fraud that claims to be psychic or medium.
1: Yeah. And I wanted to make that clear. It's been my experience, too. I mean, regardless of whether you think psychic functioning happens or not, I know people who I've gotten to know people who are extremely who believe it does and believe they have some psychic abilities and who are very sincere about it. And so I just wanted to make that point. This is not this episode is not an attack on that. It's looking at an individual case and seeing what we can find out about it and illustrating for the audience the kind of investigative techniques that can be used when someone is making these really extraordinary claims and also the need to check out people who are making really extraordinary claims.
3: Exactly. And I mean, we really didn't touch on the, the psychic or medium claims that he has. We no, but to do a lot it, of the it, other stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah it, it's similar to what I did in. Um, so, this is not the first, you know, expose type show that I've done on Mysterious World. A, a number of, like in 2020, I did one on a Canadian priest named Father Michel Rodrigue, who has these apocalyptic visions. And. I, in in reviewing it, I did something very similar. I went through, with the help of a team, I went through just hours of his presentations and then identified the key bits. And then I was able to show enough problems with just his biographical claims that it meant I could have no confidence. If I can't even believe him about his biography of normal stuff, like what happened in church and things like that, and, and where in his personal history, I, if I can't trust him about that, I can't trust him to accurately report supernatural revelations he's having. Right. And in the same way with Riggy, if you can't believe his basic biography, it, it he has no credibility with which to claim to have psychic functioning beyond that.
3: Right. And anyway, that that's a good point. And that was a great episode. I love that episode that you did. Oh, thank you. That was good. That was really good.
1: So, um, I want to thank you for being with us today. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug?
3: Uh, sure i do uh, two live shows um one friday night called the skeptical help bar it's at 8 p.m eastern time and it's basically me and uh, sometimes i have a guest on it's an educational show we talk to various experts on different topics different areas and when i don't have a guest it's we call it open mic night because mm-hmm. we go with the whole bar theme and people are allowed to ask questions it's a live q a and i even bring on audience members or viewers to ask their questions in person and get more in depth. And if I don't know stuff, we look it up during the show, which is, it's, it's fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Saturday nights at 8 PM I do uh, one called three tortured souls and it's basically it's me and Tim Vickers, Dave Schumacher. We, we get together, we pick up one topic and we discuss it from different perspectives. Um, Dave, Dave was really into parapsychology Um, has done a lot of the same classes with uh, Lloyd Arabach, friends with Lloyd. And then Tim is a forensic interviewer um, for children. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we get together, we bring our different perspectives, and we discuss different things like Skinwalker Ranch or uh, alien abductions or what would we do to make a haunted house. Fun topics, fun topics. And then I also do my column for Skeptical Inquirer uh, called A Closer Look. You can find that on the – I think you're going to put the links in in the description.
1: Yes, we'll have links to that. And also, I wanted to thank you for you gave me a, a, an acknowledgement in Skeptical Inquirer in your article. And it's, that's kind of neat for me because I come from a different perspective than Skeptical Inquirer, but I still appreciate a lot of what they do because they are trying to use critical thinking. I think they are sometimes too dismissive of paranormal and supernatural claims, but it's but I, I recognize the value in 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 in. In many parts of what they do, and so it's kind of neat for me to have a an acknowledgement on their on their site. So,
3: you know, always have to remember that it's it's different authors coming together, right? So, and you're going to have all those different perspectives. Um, I don't agree with all of them, uh, but uh, some I do agree with, and I, I I'm right in there in the middle. So, but yeah, the acknowledge, acknowledgement was well deserved. I mean, you helped me out, you gave me some advice, and I have that firm belief that you know you give credit where credit is due and everyone that helped me um i i, I call out <laughs> i make sure well, they get the
1: credit that's very kind of you Welcome. okay uh anything else we should cover before we go
3: uh, uh about riggy uh, specifically um I mean, we could go on I don't want to get into anything else because I think we can go on for like another hour., yeah. There's so much information. I don't want to hog your show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think we've made the basic point.
3: Yes. yeah. Um, just just avoid avoid him, and then check check your resources, check your people. That, that's it. Yeah.
1: OK. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much, uh, Kenny Biddle, and hope
0: to have you on again in the future on Jimmy Aiken's mysterious world.
3: Absolutely. Thank you, Jimmy.
0: Jimmy, what can we say about Robert Rigge from the faith perspective? From the perspective of
1: Catholic faith and Christian faith in general, there are a lot of problems with what Riggi is claiming. The faith is not opposed to the existence of psychic functioning. Doctors of the church, like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, both believed that God built what we would now call psychic abilities like precognition and psychokinesis into human nature. As we discussed back in episodes 105 and 106 on St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult. So, Riggi's claims to function as a psychic aren't intrinsically contrary to the faith. However, his work as a medium is much more problematic, as we discussed in episode 137 on mediums. And his work with past life regressions is extremely problematic, since the Christian faith holds that the afterlife involves resurrection you know, like happened with Jesus, instead of reincarnation, as we discussed in episodes 93 and 94 on reincarnation. So from a faith perspective, there's a lot to be concerned about here, quite apart from the fact that Riggy appears to be fundamentally untrustworthy.
0: So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on Robert Riggy?
1: To me, Robert Riggie appears to be a fabulist. His stories change and contradict each other over time. He misuses psychological terms he ought to know if he had a master's in psychology. He cannot be documented to have the degrees or licensures that he claims. Uh, His known work history and residential history contradicts his claims. He likely made up his story about his interview with Ted Bundy. He appears to have lied about his involvement with exorcisms. And Father uh, Michael uh, Maginot claims never to have met him and never to have exorcised Kevin, if that's even a real person. Riggy also has a criminal record and has spent time in jail on seven occasions. I personally... Would not let him have any contact with my children, if I had children, whether they were displaying paranormal abilities or whether they were in the process of dying. In my opinion, Robert Riggi is fundamentally untrustworthy and absolutely to be avoided.
0: And what further resources can you offer to the listeners and viewers?
1: We'll have a link to Kenny Biddle's article, Tall Tales of Psychic Medium Robert Riggy, Also a link to Kenny's other articles at the Skeptical Inquirer. Also Kenny's I Am Kenny Biddle Facebook page and Kenny's YouTube channel, and his mystery museum. We'll also have a link to an article on the Demon House documentary. We'll have a link to Father Michael Maginot's page at the church where he works. Also, the American uh, Psychological Association's definition of forensic psychology, an article, a definition of echolalia, as well as an article on echolalia, and also an article on
0: throat singing. Excellent. And Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? This week, we have a things you see in space theme. Uh, Recently,
1: we have just managed to see, by which I mean photograph, something that we've known about for quite some time, uh, but have never been able to image before. Uh, At the center of the Milky Way galaxy, there is an extremely dark, heavy object that is thought to be a supermassive black hole. Uh, We have evidence of these in other galaxies, and we have evidence of one in our galaxy we've been able for a while to like track the um the objects that are moving around it because the core of the galaxy is very densely packed with stars and you know gas clouds and stuff and we can see things whipping around this apparent supermassive black hole the name that has been given to it is sagittarius a star uh in this case the star represents an asterisk um so so We've known about Sagittarius A star for some time, but recently we were able to get an image of it. So you can uh, click on the link we'll have and see the first image of the black hole at the heart of our galaxy. Another thing that you could see in space is suns going into reverse, Um, you know, here on Earth. The Earth turns on its axis and we have this one sun. And so because of the rate at which we turn on our axis, you just see the sun move across the sky every day going from east to west. And it's pretty boring. It just always goes in the same direction. Well, on other planets... You don't necessarily see your sun or suns doing that. Um, In uh, the recent episode where we talked about how we found the universe, among others, we've mentioned how as one planet passes another in its orbit, a planet in the sky can seem to go backwards. Uh, It's kind of like when you are driving a car on a highway and you pass another car, the car that you're passing, if it's going in the same direction, looks like it's starting to move backwards as you speed past it. When that happens with planets, it's called going into retrograde. But it turns out suns can do that too. So there are there are star systems where they have multiple suns. And if you're on an exoplanet orbiting those, you may see one of the suns start going, one or more of the suns start going backwards in the sky rather than just keep going forwards. And that happens even in our own solar system on Mercury. Because Mercury is partially tidally locked with the sun and it has um, its rotation period is so is it turns so slowly compared to the shortness of its year that if you're on Mercury, you will see the sun like arcing in the sky and then it'll start to wander back a little bit before it starts going forward again. So even here in our own solar system, you can see the sun go into reverse in the sky and we'll have a link to where you can read about that.
0: Excellent. And if folks want to hear more about the Sagittarius A-star black hole at the center of our galaxy, a recent episode of another StarQuest podcast called Let Science uh, tells us a lot more about that there, too. Uh, Carolyn Knight does a great job of talking about a little bit of the history and that sort of thing. So check that out. SQPn.com slash science. So that'll do it from us, for us for us this time. We would love to hear your theories about Robert Rigby and his extraordinary claims. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Send a tweet to at mys underscore world. You can join the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special thank you to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation
1: work they do on this episode and all the episodes of Mysterious World. Uh, they do a really great job, and you can check out their work by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. and uh, you can see the stuff they've been doing. I'm really pleased with it. I've been getting a lot of positive feedback from viewers now about uh, what they're doing for the show. And if you have a need for video or animation work, check them out. We'll have their contact information on screen for you. And while you're at YouTube, uh, looking at my YouTube channel, be sure to like, comment, and especially subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you'll always uh, be notified whenever I have a new video, whether it's a Mysterious World video or something else. And I'm trying to grow my channel, so I'd really appreciate it. So Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week is a fifth Friday, so we'll be answering uh, weird questions like, will we be frozen in time in heaven? Did Lazarus have a near-death experience? Uh, The paradox of what we see in the night sky, and, and that's a really interesting one. People may not be aware of this paradox, but there is actually a paradox involving the night sky. Also, resurrection and black holes and more.
0: All right. Folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at mysteriousworldstore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the Mysterious headlines on our show notes at mysterious.fm 216. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com And by Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Doctor Who. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash doctor who.